Friday the 30th of July 2021 and you're listening to episode 27 of Reds Unrestricted. Today we're going to look at what kind of financial position Liverpool are in as they look to strengthen the squad in the remaining weeks of the window. We're joined by an expert in Mo Shatra who gave us some really good insight so we hope you enjoy it. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. So I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Dan Club. Dan, as usual, we're going to sort of start with a bit of a, a spicier question, just a straightforward, how are you? Um, and the one I've, I've thought of today is, if you could sign any of the realistic targets that are being put forward, Liverpool this summer, seeing as this episode is going to be touching on touching on transfers. Who would you choose if, if you could only choose one of those? That is a superb question. Um, I'm really good, first and foremost. Yeah, I'm sound. Um, obviously, Van Dijk and Gomez are back, so I'm really happy. Um, if I could sign one, probably Dusan Vlahovic from Fiorentina. Um, I know you said it's realistic, mm. and given his contract situation, as in signing a new one, it might not be as realistic as possibly it could have been, but he'd probably be the one. I've always had a thing for sort of strikers who can offer a bit in terms of aerial and a bit of power, and he's got all that as well as being technically brilliant. Um, and I think he scored seven goals in 45 minutes the other day, so he knows where the back of the net is. So he'd probably be the one, I'd say. Seven in 45 minutes. Were they playing yeah, against friendly. the Swells? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like an Italian Serie C side, something like that. Oh, well, even still, that's, that's good going. Um, but yeah, not a bad shout. Obviously, seems to me that he's maybe more in the kind of, he's sort of a quite a tall striker, isn't he? So would be sort of a bit of an evolution for the team if we went for him. Um, but an interesting shout, definitely. Um, our guest today is Mo Shatra. Um, and Mo is a football finance expert who regularly appears on Anfield Index podcast, especially Money Talks. Uh, Mo, sort of the same questions to you, really. Uh, how, how are you doing? And again, if you could choose one realistic target to add to this Liverpool squad, who would it be? Well, thanks for having me, having me on. Um, glad to be on. And uh, yeah, doing really well. And um, looking forward to the new season. Not long to go now. So uh, great to have Premier League back. Um, in terms of realistic signings, oh, what would I go with? Oh, what about Kylian Mbappe? <laughs> no, um, I, th- I think in terms of realistic signings, look, um, clearly the kind of numbers um, involved with making that deal happen, especially this summer, uh, potentially prohibitive. Um, maybe we'll come on to that later on. But um, I think that there's definitely a need for additional firepower up front. I mean, we know that Firmino isn't perhaps the player he was a couple of years ago. Um, Sadio Mane had a long, long stretch where he was very much out of sorts. And, you know, we can't keep on relying on Mo, especially if he were, God forbid, to get an injury. So we really could do with um, somebody else to add a bit more depth uh, to our attacking lineup. And, uh, you know, if I was to go with anyone... Um, then you know maybe a Vlahovic or um, there's also oh, I can't remember his name on, on Anfield Index we do a transfer committee podcast and um, Adam Hosek I think the name is yeah um, and he he's very highly rated and he was I think the individual that we picked out as our our second um, attacking choice. Um, because he, he, from all accounts, has got a huge amount of potential. So, you know, if, if he, you know, is available for the right price, then, you know, he'd be a really good signing, I think. Well, when you said Mbappe, it sort of occurred to me, I'm pretty sure you did a, you did a thread on whether that transfer was realistic or not to that one. <laughs> that one kind of caught me by surprise a little bit. But, um, yeah, I think the, the attack and things that you both have said are valid. Um, it's, it's difficult because... You know, in terms of realistic links, I think um, Marlon was obviously a player I, I sort of spoke about. Would like to get him as just that kind of alternative number nine, who's more effective than the likes of Origi. So, 
seeing as there isn't too many concrete ones, I'd probably go for someone like um, Annoy House um, as that kind of uh, Wijnaldum replacement, really. I think that would be a, a really good signing um, if we could do that. But, you know, Rafinha would also be a, a brilliant one as well. He's such a exciting player. But anyway, we'll move on from that um, and start the main discussion with a, a non-Liverpool issue, really. Um, I'm not sure whether how many listeners will have seen this, but there was sort of a development this week with Manchester City's uh, financial fair play travails, if you like. Um, the Mail were able to report on some some news that had kind of been embargoed, um, some of the legal battling that was going on. Um, I tried my best to make head or tail of it myself, Mo, um, and you know, I kind of roughly know what's going on, but if you could just kind of maybe explain uh, what the latest is um, with City and whether there might be any sort of fresh implications for them based on what's kind of happened this week. With with the whole situation, um, there hasn't just been the one investigation into Manchester City. Um, it was about 2019, I'd say March, April time perhaps, where... I think there was four different parties that almost at an identical time, certainly within the space of a few weeks, um, simultaneously launched separate investigations into Man City. So there was UEFA with um, their own financial fair play investigation. There was the Premier League with its financial fair play investigation. There was um, the FA over, I think it was something to do with signing of youth players and also um, not wanting to be left out uh, FIFA also joining in the party and they I think had some form of investigation into Manchester City as well so um, the FIFA one really didn't come to much the uh, FA one I think was a either a small slap on the wrist or Man City perhaps got out on the technicality. Um, we all know about the UEFA one that um, came out, I think it was summer of last year, where, again, largely on technicalities, Manchester City essentially escaped punishment. I mean, they were found guilty in terms of breaking the rules in certain respects, but then not in others. And the long short of it is, is that the original um, UEFA um, proposal of a two-year ban from European competitions was overturned by CAS, the Court of Administration for Sport, and they um, decided that um, there wasn't enough uh, to the um, decision by UEFA and its um, adjudicators in making that decision, and therefore that decision had to be overturned. Now, this this investigation by the Premier League was pretty much along the same lines. Um, however, the story that broke last week was in relation to um, the fact that Manchester City were pretty much refusing to cooperate with the Premier League. And this had gone to court. And in the end, it was a Premier League that won the case. And the Daily Mail or the Mail on Sunday report on the story because Manchester City had tried everything in its power with all of its super lawyers um, to keep the story from uh, the pages of the papers, from websites, etc. And there was a super embargo on it. And um, when the courts ruled in the favour of the Premier League, um, the decision was um, very much that the story could be um, uh, made public, go into the public domain, the fact that this investigation had commenced some two years ago, and yet Manchester City had been unwilling to play along and cooperate with the Premier League in terms of the investigation, had refused to share any emails or other documentation or evidence. Um, so so that, that was um, quite a telling thing in my view. One of the things that I've been covering on Twitter for quite some time is what are, in my view, uh, very clear transgressions of uh, financial fair play rules. And um, there's a huge amount of 
dubious um, angles to the whole uh, finances of Manchester City. So, for example, um, at the same time that financial fair play rules came into effect some seven, eight years ago, Manchester City's um, commercial income skyrocketed just out of nowhere. And that was not a coincidence in my view. And it was all to do with trying to circumvent these rules. And the emails that were leaked um, through the Spiegel um, from Football Leaks um, certainly corroborated that view. And the, the kind of key element to this story then to kind of bring it to a conclusion is that Manchester City are being asked to cooperate with this investigation. If they don't, then potentially the evidence that was gained, some claim illegally by the hacker, Rui Pinto, um, who's, who's a Portuguese fan, who's currently um, in um, police protection. And uh, that, that kind of tells you how serious this story is, that the hacker is in hiding um, out of fear that something could happen to him. Um, now, there are investigations into how he obtained information. You know, he, he is dealing with his own legal issues on that front. But nonetheless, he has got a huge amount of data which he has obtained from Manchester City, which in the view of some that have seen some of these emails is very, very damning. And if the Premier League does conclude its investigation and there aren't technicalities such as statute, statute of limitations around um, a period of which evidence can be admissible and things like that, Manchester City could be in big, big trouble. Now, that is something that um, you know I and others have talked about in the past. That, okay, this time Manchester City are really in it, and yet somehow they've got away with it. So, um, you know, they, they, there's plenty that could happen. Um, but it was an interesting development, nonetheless. That uh, we all thought that the story was dead and buried after UEFA's um, original decision to ban them for two years was overturned. We thought that was the end of it. It seemed like the Premier League's investigation was withering away. Yet, in fact, that's not how it turned out at all. And it seems like there might still be some legs in, in this one. Wow, well, that's kind of more significant than, than I thought from, from what I initially read. But thanks for kind of breaking that down for us. Um, I think what was telling was a, a phrase that you used on Twitter. You said something along the lines of City's behaviour wasn't exactly um, the behaviour of a perfectly innocent uh, party and all of this. But, but anyway, um, we'll move on to the kind of Liverpool side and the main sort of part of the discussion today, which is about Liverpool's sort of finances and probably more specifically than that, their kind of transfer budget and, and what's available to them. So just a, as a kind of brief general opener on this, what's your general impression at the moment of kind of the state of Liverpool's finances, obviously on the back of, you know, the season and, and a third maybe um, of kind of pandemic football? Well, clearly the finances have taken a substantial hit. Um, last season, most notably, um, there was next to nothing, negligible amounts of match day revenue. Match day revenue nowadays tends to be in the region of £80 million plus. And last season, it probably barely scraped two, three million. Um, we know that there were a few matches, maybe two or three, um, around November, December time, I think it was, where a couple of thousand fans were allowed into the stadium. And then at the end of the season, I think there was one or two um, home matches where, again, uh, fans were allowed in and allowed in in greater numbers. Uh, but that, that was pretty much it. So that was the key hit from a financial perspective. And then the other hit of financial nature was um, broadcast revenue, which is the biggest single revenue stream. And that took a hit because the Premier League um, decided in the 1920 season, the season that Liverpool won the league, that um, all Premier League clubs would have to uh, essentially pay the Premier League for um, the fact that they weren't able to fulfil their obligations in that season. And that money had to be paid back, um, I think, from the 2021 season. Um, it might be staggered over a couple of years. So a little bit of a hit on the match day revenue as well. 
So all told, uh, I would say that the revenue for the club was probably in the region of about 90 to 100 million pound less than it would be in a normal season. So that is a huge, significant amount of money. That said, what we are seeing at the moment is some clubs um, going out and spending quite significant sums of money. Uh, mm. Manchester United um, have completed the signing of Jaden Sancho, are about to complete the deal of um, Varane from Real Madrid, and they've got one or two more um, potentially sizable deals in the pipeline. Manchester City are really looking at big deals in the form of Harry Kane and uh, Grealish, even though at this moment in time, I don't think they've made any signings as, as yet. Uh, Chelsea, uh, we know, are very, very keen on um, Haaland, and that is a deal that won't be uh, cheap by any means, especially given his agent, who um, likes to fleece any deal involving one of his top players for all it's worth. And um, even an Arsenal, who didn't even make any European competitions for this season, mm. um, are going out and spending um, quite a significant amount of money. I mean, £50 million on Ben White, um, mm. which I, I think is a, a bit of a dodgy deal myself, it, just in terms of, um, I, I think that that's way overpriced for, for that player. Um, but the fact that even an Arsenal, who over the last three or four years have generate significantly less income than Liverpool. The fact that they're able to go out there and are owned by people that much like FSG um, do not want to spend any of their own money on their club. Um, if they are able to do that, then surely Liverpool can as well. And that's why I put out a thread, I think it was a couple of months ago where I did state that there should be some funds available. The money is there. Um, so despite the hit on the financial front from the pandemic, um, there are still funds there because there are certain things that we've incurred significant costs for um, over the last couple of years that um, are certainly far less costlier um, at this present time and going into next season. And that should free up funds um, to spend beyond just having to generate money from sales of players at surplus requirements. Yeah, you're right to bring up like comparisons with other clubs, certainly the Arsenal one, because that's one I've been looking at myself because the ownership model is, is kind of similar um, in what they look to do. I just wanted to pick up on, because I know FSG, not Liverpool necessarily, but FSG received investment during the pandemic from Redbird, I think I'm right in saying. Um, it's something you're probably a bit yes. more um, akin to than myself. Obviously, from a distance, you know, understand what's going on and get it. But... Oh. The, the talk when it happened was almost that that was going to eliminate the effect the pandemic had had on the ownership group. Has, has that not proven to be the case or, or maybe was that a bit pie in the sky? So the, the story there for those that are unaware is that um, Redbird, who are investment group, who had purchased um, a stake in the French club Toulouse, and I think they've bought into another club, I think in Spain, Malaga, recently. I think, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, yes. Um, and that they've also bought into uh, one of the big football agencies called uh, Wasserman. And so that they are putting their finger in many pies at the moment. And their investment into FSG, so important to stress, not into Liverpool, not mm. into uh, the Boston Red Sox, but into FSG, was in the region of about five... 150, 560 million pounds or dollars. Very sizable investment for, I think it was the equivalent of a 10% stake in FSG. Now, what's happened with that money, um, only FSG and Redbird know. Um, I speculated that I, I felt Liverpool as a club would see very little of that money. I speculated that the bulk of that money would be essentially pocketed by FSG which are entitled to do, they're selling a stake in themselves, not in their um, assets. Mm. Now, the, the kind of idealist in me as a fan would love to see FSG say, okay, let's put um, 50 to 100 million of that towards Liverpool Football Club. Yeah. Let's put some of that towards 
um, covering the costs of the Annie Road End expansion, mm-hmm. and perhaps use some of that money um, to support Jurgen Klopp and Michael Edwards in terms of recruitment. Now, whether that is going to happen, will be happening, um, I think we'll only be able to really say at the end of the transfer window mm. in um, something like five weeks' time, as we record this. But uh, it's, it's um, I would say, a little bit too early to tell just yet in terms of what of that money um, will be will be seen by Liverpool Football Club. Um, but I think certainly if we get to the end of the transfer window and we say only make one more signing and that signing appears to be essentially covered by the um, money that we um, bring in from further sales, then it's certainly fair to argue that Liverpool Football Club has perhaps not seen any of that money and it's all gone to FSG. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that at this point, certainly, especially when you look at other clubs um, who, you know, arguably and almost definitely over the past few years haven't performed as well as we have on the pitch or off the pitch. But you are right to bring up stuff like the Anfield Road End and the main stand even before that. And obviously the training facility has been recently bought. So there's been a lot of money going into the club, but not necessarily where we as fans want to see it going. Um, We will move on to... I suppose the transfer saga and scenario more so, if you like. Um, Carl Markham this week has reported that it's unlikely Liverpool will make any more signings, which seemed to shock the whole of Twitter. Um, kind of what you just touched upon, um, but in maybe a little bit more detail. Do you believe that's the case? Do you believe that's the case for a start, I suppose? Um, and do you think it's because purely on finances or is there something more to it as in Klopp's happy with his squad or, or what do you think is going on there? Okay, so if we um, start with do I think there'll be any more signings? I, th- I think there will be. Um, you know, though Carl has come out and stated and I'm sure, you know, that this is information that is sourced, not just made up um, that, you know, Liverpool won't be making further signings. On the flip side, there are other journalists who are arguably closer to the club who have gone on record and clearly stated that, um, in their view, the club will be making a couple more, couple more signings before the end of the transfer window. And it certainly appears that the club is making efforts to sign more players. So if Liverpool was not trying to sign any more players, I think that um, a lot of these um journalists who are close to the club would all almost in unison be um, stating the same narrative that look um, the club's business is done for the summer and um, the focus is now on um, shedding the deadwood um, for want of a better term and um, that that would be the kind of consensus story that would be coming out from your James Pierce's, your Paul Joyce's etc that is not the case so that's why I believe there will be some further business to be done. Now, if if Carl is correct, is it because there are not the funds there? I don't think so. So as I mentioned earlier, I, I do believe that there are funds there. So for example, um, over the last couple of years, the club has spent 25 to 30 million pounds per year on the Kirby redevelopment. So that's the um, fantastic new um, training facility used by not only the first team, but also by um, the academy as well. Um, so, so that's a cost that the club won't be incurring um, in this coming season. On top of that, um, when the club makes signings, um, the signings typically involve um, players' um, transfer fees being paid in three instalments. So. In the last um, two, I think three financial years, so this is 17, 18, 18, 19, 19, 20, um, the club had spent, I think it's in the region of about 450 million pounds um, towards selling clubs who had sold us the likes of Van Dyke with Southampton, um, Naby Keita in RB Leipzig, um, Alisson from Roma, and deals like that. So huge amounts of money were paid out in those previous three seasons um, on those deals. Now, at the end of the 1920 season, we only had um, about 73 million owing 
um, to clubs that had sold players to us. Now, after that, it, after that season had ended, we then brought in um, Thiago and we brought in um, Jota from Wolves. So that obviously then in, inflates that figure. But um, as I say, these payments are made over typically three installments, sometimes more installments than that. So the point being that though we were averaging about 150 million pounds over those previous three years on financing these transfer deals um, for the season just gone and this current season, because we've been spending so little in the last three or so years, um, there's going to be significantly less to pay to selling clubs because most of the players that we'd recruited, those deals had been pretty much fully been paid off um, by um, last summer. And certainly by this summer, um, you know, there's very little, relatively speaking, to pay relative to some of these other clubs like Manchester United that still have huge significant sums owing to selling clubs. So, for example, a Leicester City who sold Maguire um, to um, United a couple of seasons ago um, for £80 million. Pounds. Leicester is still owed a fair chunk of that. And, you know, they, they've also put in... Um, you know, big deals, as we know, for other players like Bruno Fernandes from Sporting Lisbon, and you know they're owed a fair chunk of money too. Um, so those two key reasons are why I say that despite the hundred million pound hit, our outgoing should be significantly less because we aren't incurring costs for Kirby. We're not incurring costs at this moment in time, other than some very preliminary costs for. Um, the Annie Road End expansion, which only just started, and we are actually borrowing money for that as well. So there is a further loan being taken out for that. Um, and the transfer fees are um, less in terms of outgoing. So all told then, um, the money should be there. So if we get to the end of this transfer window with very little in the way of incoming, so only one player, and that, as I mentioned before, is a cost that's largely covered by further sales of the likes of Shakiri, possibly Origi, then I think it's perhaps more a case of the right player or players in the view of a Klopp and Edwards not being available at this time, rather than FSG um, being overly miserly. Um, so in answer to your question, in a very long-winded way of getting there, I think it's more complex than just um, looking at it in a very binary way of saying, if we don't spend much over the next five weeks, it's because of FSG and FSG alone. Um, now, there are a number of people involved, a number of um, factors involved in ultimately getting deals over the line. And, um, you know, there could be a whole variety of reasons as to why. Obviously, it would be hugely frustrating because it would feel very much like we are standing still whilst other clubs are potentially improving. Um, but that said, you know, we all felt the same back in 2019 when we brought in what um adrian um harvey elliott i think one other player um we we were all a bit downbeat after that and yet we went on and romped um away with the premier league so you know we, <laughs> we, we like to think that transfers are the answer to everything um but you know as, as klopp and edwards have proven already once um you know they, they aren't always the be all and end all the point you made about there not being a consensus really among the top journalists, I think, is is an important one in terms of fans maybe not getting too kind of panicked about about what Markham reports necessarily. Um, I just want to kind of pick up on pick up on that because you talk about there maybe not being the kind of obstacles in place to spending as a kind of devil's advocate counterpoint, I suppose on this um do you think maybe if fsg were trying to or if the club were trying to explain come the end of the window why they didn't make the amount of signings that were expected perhaps um could that could they put that down to contracts potentially because we have um allison fabinho van dyke salah Mane, all of those players possibly in line for renewals you'd think all would be getting you know, considerable salary hikes as well. And in the reports, it was also suggested that the fullbacks would be next in line after that. And I'm, I'm sure they will get, you know, pretty huge deals. So 
maybe do you think maybe that should factor into I think when we're talking about Liverpool's transfer plans, that that is a significant like avenue for for the budget, really. It potentially is, um, but Liverpool already have the fourth biggest wage bill in world football, behind only Manchester United, Real Madrid, and uh, Barcelona. And Barcelona, at that, um, are almost being forced into reducing their wage bill to a mere fraction of what it currently is, and to the extent that uh, for this coming season, by the end of the transfer window, they will be in a position where, even with Messi on the books, their wage bill should be lower than that of Liverpool's. So we're potentially going to have, in this coming season, depending on um, whether we win trophies or not, um, again, one of the top three or four wage bills in world football. And, and part of the reason for that, and in fact, the large factor behind it is that our deals for our key players certainly are amongst the most incent- incentivized in world football. So what that means is, is that our bonuses for things like wins, for goals, for assists, uh, for clean sheets are bigger than you know players at Manchester United or Chelsea. And that's why um, some fans find it a bit bizarre that hold on, why is it that we pay lower wages than, ostensibly lower wages than a Manchester United or a Chelsea, and yet our wage bill is bigger than that? Well, certainly in 1920, our wage bill was bigger than Manchester United. I think for the season just gone, their wage bill uh, nips in ahead of us again. How is that? And that, that's because of the bonuses. The bonuses are absolutely enormous. Fans don't realise how big these bonuses are. So for just, just as a very quick example, um, Alisson, um, who hasn't signed a new deal yet, he's, he joined us, what, three years ago now? Um, he is, I think, on around £120,000 a week. Now, from reliable sources, I've been told that um, in the last couple of years, he's actually been earning more money than David De Gea, who I think about 18 months, maybe two years ago, signed a new deal with Man United where he went on to, I think, 300 or 350,000 a week. Mm-hmm. So just imagine that then. Um, you know, here we have Alisson on about 120 basic per week, earning in excess of 300K a week um, because of his bonuses. Uh, and that's the level to which these deals are incentivized. I think, um, and I've mentioned it on Twitter before, I believe that. Mo Salah is probably the highest earning um, player in the Premier League based on um, earnings from um, the, the, the club, um, whether that's a Liverpool player, Chelsea, United, uh, Manchester City. I believe that he has been earning more um, than any Premier League player. And yet um, what fans see on online or in the newspapers are just purely the reports on the basic wages and they see that okay Liverpool pay their highest paid players 200k a week and yet mm-hmm. we've got your United, your Chelsea, your Man Cities, even your Arsenal's paying players more than that per week. Um, so, so that's a bit of a red herring in a way. People shouldn't be just paying attention to the basic wages. We actually pay huge, huge sums of money uh, by way of bonuses, more than any other club in the Premier League. And um, that, that's part of the reason why we are able to retain players. But in answer to your question, and again, sorry for going on a bit of a tangent there, right. but it, it, it was, I thought, important for context. Um, I think that it, it is um, not acceptable, in my view, uh, for the club or the owners or both to argue that, look, we wanted to retain these players for another few more years beyond their contracts ending in 2022 or 23 or 24. Um, and that was our priority. And the reason I have a problem with it, and I think a lot of Liverpool fans would have a problem with it, is simply because this is a team that is ageing now. Um, you know, the core of this squad is around 29 and will be turning 30 if it hasn't already done so during the course of this season. And the longer we leave it where we don't bring in these 
um, players that are potentially ready to slot into the first 11, um, the bigger the problem becomes in terms of then having to replace more players all at once and about whether we'll have the finances to do so. So, so that's why there has to be a balance between having the deals to retain players for the long term that we want to keep for, for the long term, whilst also replenishing the squad. And I think Manchester, Manchester City, I mean, for the criticism I've leveled at the club, I think their approach to squad management is very good in that, um, you know, they've lost a number of key players over the last two, three years. You know, your Yaya Toure's, your Vincent Companies, David Silvers, Aguero's just gone. You know, these key, you know, um, icons of the club now have all left in the last two, three years. And yet City have taken this approach of every year, every summer, bringing in these two or three players that they feel are ready for the first team. And yet we have not really done that for the best part of three years now. You know, we, we essentially have um, the, the first 11, the favourite first 11 um, as a group that were all pretty much there back in 2018. Um, and that that isn't, in my view, ideal squad management because, as I say, they're all getting older together. And yes, it's good in terms of consistency and certain elements of it from a tactical perspective are good. Um, but in terms of, you know, pushing that problem for, further down the line to the point at which, you know, you're having to replace five or six players who are 30, 31, 32, all in a short space of time. And if we don't have the funds to do so, um, you know, we could be replacing with players that are um, at a substantially lower level and then, again, we go from competing for the Premier League each season to trying to scrap for a place in the top four. I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, in, the incentives in our contracts. I, I'm, something I've never really considered. Um, and you're dead right to suggest that fans wouldn't even, wouldn't even pick up on that. And I just thought, like you kind of alluded to, that we were, you know, obviously incredibly well paid, you know, football club and football team. But the fact that someone like Alison could go from what he was on to above the hair is mind-blowing. Um, but yeah, you're right in terms of, you know, the squad needs freshening up and it's something we have been reluctant to do by the looks of it. So yeah, in terms of um, kind of kicking the can down the road, which is something Liverpool have, I feel reluctant to say been doing in terms of this squad, but it is getting to that sort of level. Um, and we just touched upon the contracts being offered or not as the case may be with Jordan Henderson. Um, Neil Jones, another reliable journalist close to the club, has um, stated this week that uh, the club are talking up next summer as potentially the big summer to see overhauls and potentially big incomings happening, um, which when I first seen it, it's something that struck me as I've seen it before. Um, whether that was, you know, realistic and I had seen it before, whether it just felt like I'd seen it time and time again, I'm not sure. But um in your view, Mo, is this something that people are putting out there to try and appease supporters? Because we've all seen the fan base on social media and friends, and we're all saying the same things about different clubs buying people, and we're not necessarily active yet in the window. I know we've got Canate, but or, or do you believe it's just that, or do you believe you know there will be this major sort of spending spree, if you like, coming down the road for Liverpool? Yeah, I mean, I, I did... Um... Have a bit of a wry smile when I read that from uh, Neil um, this week. I thought, oh, it's a bit like deja vu. I'm sure we read pretty much the exact same statement uh, or story last summer and summer before. And um, I, I do think that sometimes I, I wish that because uh, Neil, Neil is obviously a journalist that's close to the club and. With something like this, um, there's a fair chance it was something that somebody at the club had briefed to him, um, perhaps to try, try and temper expectations somewhat, um, just to get it out there. Look, you know, if we don't get certain deals that we're working on over the line, then look, don't fear fans, you know, next summer will be our summer, um, which is like the new version of, um, you know, next season, it will be our year or whatever. So I, I think that. Um, it's 
something to take with a pinch of salt more than anything. I do think that um, the club takes a very interesting approach in terms of trying to manage the narratives that are out there around um, transfer windows, which is in stark contrast to a lot of the other top clubs, not only in the Premier League, but around Europe, where if you look at um, the patch journalists who cover your Manchester Cities, United's, Chelsea's, um, even Arsenal's and Tottenham's, um, the language coming out of those clubs is a lot more bullish, um, trying to fill fans with optimism. And yet with Liverpool, it's almost the complete opposite pretty much every year that, look, um, don't expect much business to take place. Um, you know, the club's happy with the players it has. And, and you know, to be fair to the journalists, it's not just the journalists um, just um, regurgitating um, the spin that comes out of the clubs. It's also um, even Jurgen Klopp himself you know, talking up how good his squad is and you know, how happy he is with everyone. Um, I, I think that, uh, that that's something that I, again, take with a pinch of salt. I think that uh, there's clearly been efforts over the last several years to bring certain players in and those efforts have been unsuccessful. I think there are certain players that Jürgen Klopp would love to sign, um, but with the current owners and the ownership model and the business model, um, those deals are hard to put together. Whereas, you know, Chelsea, for example, um, despite, again, having generated less revenue than Liverpool for the last three seasons running, four seasons even, um, are able to go out and spend £80 million in one fell swoop um, to trigger the buyout clause for a Kepper, are able to go out and buy um, Kai Havertz and Timo Werner, both of whom Klopp absolutely was very, very keen on, and we know that. And also now, um, Haaland and you know Chelsea are very keen on getting that deal done. And that's yet another player that I'm sure Jurgen Klopp would love to work with. So I think that um, it's a very strange approach that Liverpool Football Club takes in terms of trying to control the narrative. I think some of it is almost pleading poverty to say, look, um, you know, we have limited funds, we're having to sell to buy, you know, that, that's a, one that's been trotted out three seasons or, or more in a row. And, you know, clubs out there are not stupid. They can see how much, you know, Liverpool Football Club is generating. Their accounts are publicly available. Um, you know, Liverpool Football Club generated the fifth highest turnover in world football of any football club um, in the 1920 season. So, you know, to try and give the impression that, you know, they're, they're short of funds is, um, you know, certainly something that, you know, any sensible club um, would not fall for. So I, d I don't really understand what the purpose is. Um, and as I say, it is in stark contrast to the approach taken by um, all of the other clubs pretty much out there. Um, so I, I find it a bit strange and a bit bizarre that um, they choose to do this. And that's why, as I say, I had a bit of a wry smile um, when Neil put that story out because, um, you know, we... we do get a bit of deja vu with this now because um, it seems to be the same old, same old um, every summer. Yeah, it certainly does. And it, it, you pick up some interesting points there. And it feels like you know, when you compare us to other clubs, in most clubs, certainly Chelsea and City, just tend to you know, lavishly spend money, if we're going to be honest, certainly in the past couple of decades. Um, but Liverpool have never really been able to do that. You know, Even when we did spend big, it was on the back of you know, big player sales, which is where the whole, you know, sell-to-buy sort of methodology came from. It feels like as Liverpool fans, we've all become, not to a certain level, but kind of experts in the way FSG operates, and we're all kind of in on the whole model and the whole narrative of it. And um, just wanted to pick up on another point as well. You mentioned almost like the journalists kind of come out with the same spiel most years and it is trying to temper the sort of uh, aspirations of the fan base um, and then they surprise us with like a jotter and even most of last summer it was like Thiago is probably not going to happen it's not realistic etc etc and I go back to Danny Ward before that he was meant to be Liverpool's number one when we signed Alisson 
And then all of a sudden they'll drop this, you know, big, big buy-in. And it's almost like a surprise. And it's almost as if they're doing it too. You know, send a message to other clubs that we might be interested in their players that we aren't cash rich. Um, but you're right, there's only so long that can work for and clubs are going to start getting wind of it, I suppose. Um, and even I've seen Fabrizio Romano this week talking about the Jota by last year. I think he kind of played down any links Liverpool have got to Chiesa, Federico Chiesa this week. Um, and in the same breath said he didn't expect us to sign Jota last summer. So it's really difficult to tell what we're going to do. Yeah, um, the point you both raised before that, though, about uh, about the messaging of the club is really interesting. Um, I, I find it quite strange that we put out via journalists the idea that, you know, straight after the Canate signing, we're going to need to sell more players, put ourselves in a position to, to buy more. Um, and whilst that does put fans in the picture and that's good when when you think about the dynamics of the negotiations if other teams know that Liverpool really need to raise money to fund transfers then they're not going to necessarily they're going to think hang on we can maybe get a deal that works in our favour here trying to buy a Liverpool player but sort of on the other side I think there has just been a more, much more cautious and less bullish approach ever since Van Dijk that's kind of the the moment really where it changed and I think we kind of we got stung by being bullish in that case um and as, as you alluded to Dan like with the Thiago deal and the Jota deal and stuff a lot of the time the messaging is kind of consistent and then almost something happens really quickly and that's why I'm kind of not necessarily hugely panicked about everything about everything transfer related at the moment because I know that based on last summer one of the big journalists can tweet that a date we're in advanced talks for a deal and within 12, 24 48 hours that player's announces a signing um but we will we will move on to the to the final sort of and possibly most important section in my eyes and um, I want to get your opinion on this Mo so obviously you've kind of touched upon different clubs and our rival in the Premier League and what they're spending so I won't go into too much detail on that but we know about City you know lining up big money moves for Kane and potentially Grealish. We spoke about Chelsea and Haaland and United's business that they've already wrapped up. Um, so as Liverpool fans and as Liverpool, you know, with FSG not willing to spend that kind of money that other clubs are, and they're not, let's not beat around the bush, even though, you know, we have been competing on the same level for some time. Um, how much are Liverpool... How grateful are we, I suppose, as well? But how much are we relying on the brilliance of, of Klopp and his coaching staff as well? Okay, so I'm going to say something which might be a bit controversial, but I think it's um, something that I feel personally is, is difficult to argue with. I am of the view that we have achieved what we have in the last three to four years in spite of the FSG model, not because of it. Now, let me just explain. Um, FSG are not um, people that are individuals who, between them, uh, have a huge amount of wealth relative to some of these other owners out there. So if you look at your know, Roman Abramovich, Sheikh Mansour, um, you know, you've, you've even got owners of, you know, your Aston Villas, um, and some of these other clubs, in terms of their actual wealth, um, the, you know, the, these clubs have got more money than the, you know, the likes of John Henry and um, Tom Werner, because though they are on paper billionaires, a lot of their wealth is actually attributable to the fact that they own uh, very highly valued assets um, in the shape of Liverpool Football Club and the Boston Red Sox, most notably. Um, take that away and say, okay, well, what, what's their actual wealth? How much do they have in the bank? If you compare what's in their bank accounts to some of these other owners, um, there's a massive gulf, a huge, huge gulf. On top of that, we have now moved into arguably a post-FFP world. What I mean by that is um, a lot of people after that decision 
of the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which overturned UEFA's um, intention to ban Manchester City from European competition for two years as the death knell of FFP. Now, yes, um, it's been slightly resuscitated to an extent by the Premier League with its own investigation, and we'll see what comes of that, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, I think that the governing bodies and the people that um, work within them um, don't have the resolve, the fortitude, some may even argue the intelligence to back up these um, noble ideas like FFP when faced with very expensive challenges from um, you know, your Abu Dhabis and the likes to them. So if we're living in an FF, post-FFP world where owners are able to supplement the normal income of the club you know, through match day revenue, through broadcast revenue, through commercial revenue, and um, support their clubs in that way, then we're at a significant disadvantage then because our owners, Liverpool Football Club's owners, FSG, refuse to, out of principle, based on the way that they wish to operate, put any money into the club. And what's ironic here is that Liverpool Football Club was put on sale um, 16, 17 years ago by the Morse family. And one of the reasons they said that they wanted to put the club up for sale is because they, the family, actually used to put some of their own money into supporting the club. But they said, we are not able to operate on the same level as some of these people that are now coming into the Premier League. We want somebody to take over the club that is able to invest more of their own money into the club than we can. And yet here we are, 16, 17, 18 years on, with owners that are actually putting in less money than the Moore family did, which is quite ironic. Um, now, that's don't get me wrong, that's not to say that FSG are bad owners, that, that, that they are bad for the football club. Far from it. You know, they've done plenty of positive things for Liverpool Football Club. Um, you know, they steadied a, you know, a ship that was quite frankly sinking. You know, it was on the verge of administration and they rescued the club. But that rescue mission was taken on 11 years ago, pretty much. And we have moved on since then. And we've got to look at what's happening now rather than keep harping back to what happened in October 2010. And that is why I take the view that we have won the Champions League. We've won the European Cup. Um, sorry, not the, not the European Cup, the Premier League, rather. The, the uh, European Super Cup, the Club World Cup, um, because of the brilliance of Klopp and also um, the intelligence of Michael Edwards and his team to identify the right kind of players for the way that Klopp likes to operate. And I think that those two worked fantastically well um, under conditions which are not ones that they are deeply unhappy about. Because I think if they were deeply unhappy about it, uh, uh, Klopp strikes me as the type of person that would have walked by now if he was deeply unhappy about it. He has always worked to limited budgets. And um, I think that there's a part of him that quite likes to be the underdog um, you know, he certainly enjoyed it and reveled in it when he was coaching Dortmund up against the might of Bayern Munich. And he sees Manchester City as kind of a similar challenge of a club with almost unlimited resources to go out and buy the best players who can have, you know, if they wanted to, 22 world-class players, two top, top players in each position. Um, and yet, you know, we're... we're challenging and competing effectively against that because the Klopp way of doing things and the FSG way of arguably doing things is that the sum is greater than the whole of its parts or is, is that the right term or something along those lines but you know what I mean so I, I think that we have achieved what we have in recent years in spite of this model I think it's more data brilliance of Klopp and the best example I can give to illustrate that is the season we won the title. We won the Champions League in June, 1st of June, 2019, was it? We then thought, okay, we're now going to step up. Um, we're going to bring in some top players, um, make our squad even better, and then go on and give the title, the Premier League title, another go. And instead, we brought in fringe players at best. Um, 
And yet, despite that, despite the fact there was negligible investment into the squad, even though John Henry went on record and said, we will invest in the squad, and they never did, um, their, their marquee signing that summer was Adrian, was it? Andy Lonergan, one of them. Don't, um, call, don't call Adrian a marquee signing. Shivers down my spine. Well, we certainly didn't spend barely any money that summer. No. Yet, despite that, Klopp went on and won the Premier League title at a canter, racked up 97 points, was it? Um, you can't say that that was because of FSG. You simply cannot. That was down to the brilliance of Klopp um, galvanising that squad that was certainly happy it won the Champions League, but deflated at the same time that it narrowly missed out on the Premier League, um, made it go again, um, redoubled their efforts. They were like a team possessed and they romped away, and they, they clearly would have won 100 points plus, um, except, you know, that they did it with ease, and obviously because of the, the three-month um, enforced break because of lockdown, um, we, we, you know, we missed out on hitting that century mark. But um, that, for me, was down to the bridge of clock. And if we look again as another example, January transfer window, that was a shambles, quite frankly. You know, we should have brought in um, a centre-back um, right at the start of the window because there was a clear need to do that well in advance of the 1st of January 2021 and yet it took Klopp virtually begging FSG in a press conference to bring in additional um, resources um, in the centre-back position and getting a couple of cheap deals done right at the 11th hour of the January transfer window um, and even then um, we largely financed that through um, a loan deal for Minamino going out to Southampton. So I, I really do now think that as well as FSG have done with expanding the stadium, uh, making certain key personnel decisions in terms of recruiting the club, bringing in an Edwards into the sporting director position, um, and one or two other things. There's a lot of things that they've mis made mistakes on, quite frankly, as well. And... As I say, we are in a post-FFP world. This model long-term is one that worries me. And um, I, th I think that, uh, you know, if Klopp decides to go in 2024, um, unless this way of working changes, um, I, I do have fears. So apologies for ending on a bit of a sour note, but I, I do have fears that, um, you know, our, our long-term future isn't looking so bright um, if he goes in 2024. I'm certainly growing to appreciate Klopp, I think, more somehow as as each season passes. And yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed um, this discussion. It's great to have these these podcasts where we're not only able to talk about about the club and enjoy it that way, but also to, to actually learn as well as we're doing it. So so it's been great. So thanks very much, Mo. Um, before we go, we're going to give you the opportunity to plug in Ian. You'd like our listeners to have a look at. Um, we'll put your Twitter in the uh, episode description, but if there's anything else, um, fire away. Yeah, thanks. So um, you can find me on Twitter at Moshatra, M-O-C-H-A-T-R-A. And um, as you mentioned at the start, I do uh, put out a podcast called Money Talks for Anfield Index, which uh, largely covers Liverpool Football Club. Occasionally I do cover other football clubs on it as well. Um, most recently um, covered the uh, financial situation involving Arsenal. Um, I thought there were certain interesting parallels between what's going on there um, and the way that we operate and um, maybe one or two potential warning signs um, in terms of how Arsenal have operated in the last few years, which has led to their more recent demise, uh, relatively speaking, of course. Um, and I have got a couple of... Um, Money Talks um, lined up for the next couple of weeks as well. So if you are interested in um, some of the off-field affairs of Liverpool Football Club, certainly of a business, financial, commercial nature, um, yeah, I'd certainly strongly urge you to check out Money Talks on Anfield Index Pro. Great. Well, I'm sure they'll be able to find that uh, via Twitter if they, if they give you a follow. Um, before, we, before we go, any final thoughts, Dan? No, um, brilliant. Just want to say thanks to Mo. Um, really insightful, really eye-opening at times as well. And like I said at the start, stuff, you know, 
I, I consider myself a reasonably well educated Liverpool fan in terms of what's going on in the club, but that was that was another level and really interesting. And it's gives you a little bit of perspective. Um, I just want to say as well, I wholeheartedly agree with everything we kind of finished on with the Klopp situation. The man um, is a genius, but he also loves an underdog fight, and I think we're very lucky to have him. Yeah, he certainly does, and maybe it, it kind of suits him in a way. Um, or maybe he's just not being given the resources, who knows. But anyway, that is going to be uh, all we've got time for this week. Um, there's only a couple of weeks now till the start of the season, so stay with us as we kind of ramp up to that. But yeah, that's that's all for episode 27. Um, so join us at the end of next week, and we'll be back with more.